Good evening. Welcome everyone to Tura Laura, the podcast where myself and Christian Dugstad over in Oslo are exploring folk songs. And you're very welcome to this very special Easter episode on Good Friday. How are you doing, Christian? Not too bad, Josh. Thank you. Still floating about over there. Still floating about, yeah. And folks, if you want to get in touch with us, we have all the social media. It's all up and running. We're raring to go. We have Facebook. We have Instagram. We have Tinder. No, we don't have Tinder. I'm only joking. But we are online and you will find us if you look up the words Tura Lura. That's two O's in Tura, two O's in Lura. And don't forget to drop us an email, Podcast at gmail.com with all your questions, comments and giving out and all that good stuff. And on top of all of that, we beg you, we plead of you, get in there to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. We need all of those stars to move up the rankings and get into the new and interesting category because we're brand new guys and the algorithm is not favourable. You can't see that, folks, but he's holding up a wee whiskey glass there. Mm. It's looking well. It's looking well. Teeling. Uh, here, I, here I was thinking that you were just following the usual old trend there, drinking your Barry's Loose Leaf. I thought we had made a pact to have a different tea in every episode. <laughs> so, what are you having? I'm on the very hard stuff here. You can't see it, folks. I'm holding up a lovely clear glass of... Putching. What, what people can believe is water. <laughs> no, <laughs> I am. I'm on the water because I have had a tooth pulled and I'm struggling away here on liquids only for the next couple of days. Sounds like the perfect diet. That's what my brother said. He said it'd be great for the exercise routine. <laughs> well, Easter, Josh. Yeah, it's a significant old time in Ireland. Uh, a time of great remembrance. And I'm sure most of you have heard about what happened at Easter time around 105 years ago. Would that be right? That would be right. That's a guesstimate. I think I'm right. 105 years ago, because roughly five years ago, I played at the 100-year anniversary. And um, yeah, we had the Easter Rising in Dublin at the GPO. So to keep on the theme and on the topic of this lovely Easter-related episode, and to keep in line with the remembrance of the great fallen heroes of 1916, myself and Christian have decided to cover a very important song and important topic in the Irish tradition that is very, very much related and stems from the 1916 Rising. Isn't that right, Christian? That is right. I think we'll save the title of the song till till after we've we've done a little bit of a scene setting and and gotten a bit more into to the episode. But a song that's very near and dear to my heart, uh, a song that I learned very early on uh, when I was introduced to Irish music way back in many years ago. Sounds good to me. I'm sure the people are eager to hear what it's all about. So, without further ado, I think I'm going to have to say, Christian, it's time to set the scene. Atop the GPO, two flags were flapping in the fresh southwest breeze. The tricolour and the green had been hoisted shortly after the rebels had taken the post office. The Dubliners that walked up and down Sackville Street that rainy Easter Monday in 1916 didn't offer much attention to the goings-on inside the monumental building in the centre of the capital. Not yet, anyway. They certainly weren't aware of the mark this day would make on Irish history. An hour earlier, at 11 o'clock on the 24th of April, around 400 volunteers had gathered at Bursford Place outside Liberty Hall, 
at the sound of 16-year-old William Bill Oman's bugle. Most of them had marched the short distance to the general post office. Among them was Podrick Pierce. In green uniforms with loaded guns, they had stormed into the building and the surprised stamp buying and letter sending customers hadn't known what to make of the fuss. We have declared an Irish Republic, James Connolly had shouted, but the people had remained unimpressed. A couple of shots to the ceiling had changed that quick enough. The customers scattered and at 11.55 the GPO was seized. Windows were broken to avoid sprays of shattered glass when the inevitable gunfight commenced. Old accountant journals were brought out and stacked up along the windows as protection. And at 12.45, Padraig Pears stepped outside the building with a document that had been printed at Liberty Hall only the day before. Knowing what followed the rising, what it would inspire, the fire it stoked, it's easy to glorify this moment, imagine it as grandiose, cinematic even, with epic music and the oppressed Irish cheering him on, rallying to the cause. The fact of the matter was that the few local bystanders didn't give a single fuck. To them, he was a fanatic and had nothing to do with their daily struggles. But to Pierce. In that moment, I think he felt the importance. He was, after all, a dreamer himself, and with great confidence he lifted the legendary piece of paper and read, Poblacht na the provisional government of the Irish Republic to the people of Ireland, Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood, Ireland through us summons her children to her flag and strikes for her freedom. What's with the feckin' pipes? <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. And I know that it might seem strange and misplaced, but the fact of the matter is that it's not that unlikely you know that I'm a big fan of St. Lawrence O'Toole Pipe Band. They mm -hmm. were formed in 1910 in Seville Place in Dublin. And people amongst the people that were there, you have Podrick Pierce, you have Thomas Clark, you have Sean McDermott, you have Arthur Griffith, Douglas Hyde, the cream of the crop. They were all there. So <laughs> it's, it's not that unlikely that St. Lawrence O'Toole was out playing on the 24th of April 1916. Obviously, I I'm first and foremost wanted to stick the pipes in just to give it a little bit of that, you know, that feeling of, of cinematicness and, and epicness. Bagpipes are very, very central to Irish traditions for a couple of centuries now, for sure. Like, they're even, they're featured in the flat and there's a lot of Irishness hidden within bagpiping traditions, especially in the north of Ireland. In its essence, it's first and foremost a, a, a Celtic instrument. Up the Celts. Up the Celts. But yeah, no, St. Lawrence O'Toole, they were, they were at least, for sure, they were active playing well during the War of Independence. The headquarters were attacked on several occasions by the British Army and they ceased to have any political affiliations after the That could just the be Irish because of the sound of the pipes, though. <laughs> 
<laughs> like I wouldn't have blamed them for attacking them if they were playing the pipes that loud at two in the morning, you know. I'm only joking, I'm only joking. The song that we are of course talking about that Christian has fantastically decorated for us in his lovely scene setting is The Foggy Jew, a song written by Canon Charles O'Neill from Port Lennon, County Antrim, and he was alive from 1887 to 1963. So as I just said to Christian, he's not gone all that long, but this is a song that he wrote inspired by the events of the Rising. He wanted to basically emphasise the martyrdom of these people and write a song about it and bring it to the masses. Do you want to read me a little bit of the lyrics, Josh? As down the glen one Easter morn to a city fair rode I, their armed lines of marching men in squadrons passed me by. No fife did hum, nor battle drum, did sound its dread tattoo. But the Angelus bell or the liffy swell rang out through the foggy dew. And I'm going to skip a few verses here because my absolute favourite verse is the second last one. It's absolutely brilliant. The bravest fell and the requiem bell rang mournfully and clear for those who died at Eastertide in the springing of the year. And the world did gaze in deep amaze at those fearless men but few who bore the fight that freedom's light might shine through the foggy dew. It's truly epic and we'll, we'll circle back around to, to Father or Canon O'Neill. But before we do that, let's talk a little bit about The Rising. What inspired this O'Neill to write this song? Well, there are so many books written on this. There are so many places on the internet you can go. There are great podcasts out there talking about it. But just the broad strokes, in Easter 1916, all around Dublin rebels or republicans or whatever you want to call them seized different important buildings in Dublin proclaimed an Irish republic uh, and obviously they they were a relatively small group of people compared to the population of Dublin and they had no illusions of actually achieving what they set out to do or what they proclaimed. They didn't think that the British army or the crown would just roll over and let them be. But it was a very symbolic act. It was, like we said, it's it's the spark. It was essentially a failure in a military sense. Like, But like you said, they had no intention of it being a success. They They were going out there to basically sacrifice themselves for the cause. Most of... Uh, the leaders were executed. Basically, they were they were arrested and thrown in jail. And at this point, the general public in Ireland, in Dublin and around the rest of the country even, obviously the non-Republican people, well, I wouldn't even say that they were non-Republican. They were just people living their lives, you know. But these people, after Pierce and the lads had been thrown in jail, said, I hope they get everything that's coming to them, the feckers. They're after destroying Dublin and making a hames of the place and we can't go to work now because of them and this and that and because these huge boats came up to Liffey and bombed the shit out of the city centre there was nothing left like you can actually go online and look up pictures of what was left of some of the buildings on O'Connell Street after the rebellion and like I can understand why the normal people that just wanted to collect their pension would have been a bit pissed but um Suddenly what changed was they were assassinated for their supposed crimes and that made the Irish people say, hang on a minute, why did they kill them? 
they were just a couple of messers. Why have they done this? What's the story? And then this harsh reaction from the Brits is what stemmed a public view that something had to be done. And it just developed from there. They they very easily could have locked them up for life. In which case, I think the public opinion might never have shifted. On On my bed, I have four or five different books about Irish history and some of them are exclusively exclusively about uh, republicanism and revolution and it's all the way from from this thing that you can hear it's called Blood Upon the Rose Easter 1916 The Rebellion That Set Ireland Free which is a graphic novel (laughs) which is actually a really good one that people should get out there and see because it's very accurately depicted I think it is, yeah. But I do also have this giant of a book called The Atlas of Irish Revolution. I think it's around five kilos. It's uh, a heavy mofo. And I really wanted to, to read a quote. I feel it's very important when we're going to talk about the Foggy U. To focus on its military limitations would be to miss the point of the rebellion. Headquartered in one of the most prominent buildings of the capital's main thoroughfare and choreographed by a military council of poets and dramatists, the spectacle was witnessed by thousands of Dubliners and the international press as a kind of revolutionary street theatre. Both the rebels' behaviour and their propaganda attest to the symbolic nature of the insurrection. This was most clearly grasped by Pierce, whose proclamation of an Irish Republic on Easter Monday provided for posterity, if not for the bemused onlookers who witnessed it, the event's most iconic moment. An inspirational call to arms, the proclamation's rhetoric reflected the most idealistic strands within separatism, identifying the rebellion with religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities. And that's written by Fergal McGarry. And I think that that pinpoints something very important, Josh. Uh, It was, as we've said a million times now, it was a bit of a failure at the time. I'm going to read I'm going to read a quote to you from Padre Pierce because it's probably one of the most accurate ones. You have to bear in mind that Ireland had been in control by the British for 700 years at this point. No generation that was alive knew what it was like not to be under the rule of the British. So in their minds they were already free. They were just living their lives. It was the dreamers and the artists and the poets that were the ones who thought, "Hang on a minute, we're still not free." And we haven't been for 700 years. We need to do something about this. And Pierce was kind of one of the revolutionaries of that movement that said, hang on, no, I know people think that they're free here and that everything's fine, but it's not. We need to do something about this. Which is why it was a minority and they were considered kind of rebels, like we said. Like a lot of the people in Dublin would have looked down on them and thought that they were mad and like but yeah so Podrick Pierce was one of these dreamers and I just wanted to read out this quote because it shows that he knew what was happening before it happened he wrote on the 29th of April 1916 is what it says here that he wrote irelandcalling.ie when we are all wiped out people will blame us for everything and condemn us 
but in a few years they will see the meaning of what we tried to do. And just to keep going further with that, he also says, If you strike us down now, we shall rise again and renew the fight. You cannot conquer Ireland and you cannot extinguish the Irish passion for freedom. If our deed has not been sufficient to win freedom, then our children will win it by a better deed. That's spot on. He knew what was coming. <laughs> it was planned by by uh, poets and dramatists and, and dreamers. Authors, the likes of me like- and you. The likes, yeah, but the like, the creative souls. So in many ways, like it was, it was almost like a theatre. It was uh, dramatised, a performance to try to, to stoke a fire in Mm -hmm. the people. And that was extremely successful. And if we now circle back to the song, to the Foggy Dew, the guy that you mentioned, Charles O'Neill, from County Antrim, he was he was present at the first ever Irish Parliament, the Dáil Éireann, in 1919. And, and I'm going to read off Wikipedia here. The names of the elected members were called out, but many were absent. Their names were answered by the reply, Fui Glas Egnagal, locked up by the foreigner. And at least according to the internet, that moment had such an intense impact on O'Neill that only a short while after that, maybe a couple of years, he wrote the song The Foggy Dew, which is super interesting that that at the time of the rising, 1916, people were calling them shinners. They uh, thought they were absolute fanatics, lunatics. They were only making trouble. And in 1919... Three years later. Three years later, the first doll, Erin, and and this inspired a man to write this song, says so much about how successful mm-hmm. that performance... But that, or that-, that doll was spearheaded by people who took part in the rising who obviously took on more recruits once the public opinion shifted and ideas and notions shifted and people realized that this was a cause worth fighting for and clearly worth dying for to some people that um the likes of Eamon de Valera and Michael Collins were present at that first doll and would have been some of the ringleaders Harry Boland was another and they were very very much prolific as kind of the new generation so that 1919 first doll was very much still highly related to the original rising and stemmed from that even though people in in the space of three years people's opinions had changed very very much because of all that had happened but the original heads and the original hearts of the rising were still present if you look at, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I've been listening to a good few podcasts and, and radio shows about the rising now the past few days, just to brush up on the on the the story. Uh, Sinn Féin went from having nil, like zero representatives to having like 70 something out of 100 something, like Again, I, I don't have the numbers in front, but but it gives you a general idea of how how the the winds had changed. And obviously many of the executed leaders would have 
probably have been high up in Sinn Féin had they still been alive. So when you look at the lyrics of The Foggy Dew again, and you see like, had they had they died by Pierce's side. And relating them back to the people that died and saying that they could just as easily have been some of those people and that he's in the presence of them. But one of the really interesting things to me is you're talking about 1919, three years after the rising. And the big shift in public opinions and things that happened and ideas that changed in that time and how these guys were suddenly considered martyrs. But three years before the rising, in 1913, William Butler Yeats wrote a poem called September 1913 about how he believed, and this is another poet and dreamer who was living amongst the likes of Patrick Pierce, by the way, who had the same ideas and notions as him, he wrote this poem, September 1913, about how the romantic notion of Ireland is gone and how people are just happy going with the status quo and there's no such thing as fighting for freedom or what you believe in anymore and how he's sick of the idea of romantic Ireland being dead. And I just thought this was a good time to mention that considering it's exactly three years before the Rising and what you talked about is three years after the Rising. I'm just going gonna, gonna to read you maybe a little bit of the Yeats poem, just so you get the idea. This was basically Yeats giving out to the people of Ireland for not having more romantic and idealistic ideas of what Ireland could be. It's called September 1913. What need you being come to sense but fumble in a greasy till and add the halfpence to the pence and prayer to shivering prayer until you've dried the marrow from the bone for men were born to pray and save. Romantic Ireland's dead and gone. It's with O'Leary in the grave. Yet they were of a different kind, the names that stilled your childish play. They've gone about the world like wind, but little time had they to pray. For whom the hangman's rope was spun, and what God help us could they save? Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. And just bear in mind that he's talking about the people from the rebellions of the 1700s. And even before that, because 1916 has not happened yet, and it's been quite a long time in Irish history since any big push or effort has been made in a big way towards the cause. And he finishes with, Could we turn the years again and call those exiles as they were? In all their loneliness and pain, you'd cry some woman's yellow hair has maddened every mother's son. They weighed so lightly what they gave, but let them be, they're dead and gone. They're with O'Leary in the grave. And then, then really interestingly, in 1916, in the immediate aftermath of the Rising, Yeats writes another poem because he's, he's shocked. He can't believe what's just happened and he's basically completely gone back on everything that he said. <laughs> and just bear in mind, when I, I'm only going to read one verse of this, the first verse, but rem- bear in mind that the last verse, the last line of every verse in the previous poem finishes with, Romantic Ireland's dead and gone, it's with O'Leary in the grave. Listen to the ending of this verse, and it's the ending of every verse in this poem. Easter 1916. I've met them at close of day, coming with vivid faces from counter or desk among grey 18th century houses. I've passed them with a nod of the head or polite meaningless words, or have lingered a while and said polite meaningless words, and thought before I had done of a mocking tale or a jibe to please a companion around the fire at the club, being certain that they and I but lived where motley is worn. All changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. I love that. A terrible beauty is born. A terrible beauty is born. 
Yeah. And at the very, 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 very end of the poem, he talks about their sacrifice and everything that they did. And he finishes with, we know their dream enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excessive love bewildered them till they died? I write it out in a verse, McDonough and McBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be, wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible oh. beauty is born. Oh my God. And that was at the time, like this was a man that sat at the meetings and joined them in the tables and yeah. was involved. Like he was one, him and the Countess Markovich, who was very much a fighter in the Rising, founded the Abbey Theatre on Abbey Street in Dublin. And they were very, very uh, much rallied to the cause at all times. But Yeats, in the space of three years, was proven wrong, basically. <laughs> and I love that. And I love that three years later, it's yeah. become even more intense and it the idea is in the public now and the public eye has completely changed too. Six years can make a difference. Six years can make a huge difference. Will we see a united Ireland, Josh, within our lifetime if, if Yeats could go from complete, utter depression for Ireland's sake into see the rising and subsequently the the war of independence do you think what do you think will happen in our time i i think that something's gonna happen i'll put it to you that way it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out usually things like that today are decided with a vote but it's interesting if you think about the fact that very few people were pro an Irish Republic at the time of the Rising and those very few went out in the city that day. They changed the minds of of a lot of people. I think that you need the dreamers to achieve things like that. Not just people, statesmen, that uh, sit and create policies and weigh like the pros and cons of... Uh, sh- should we do this? It it'll cost this much. It will save money here. It'll become easier this and this way. Like it's not about. Mm, yeah, it's just do it. Let's just do this. The people that achieve things like that, they're not doing it for that reason. They're doing it because they feel it in their mm-hmm. gut. Yeah, and, and you can see and read in the documents how badly planned it was, and they went ahead regardless. Yeah, you know, like everything went. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. In the days leading up to the Rising, like Roger Casement was arrested, they lost all their weapons, the Rising was called off, and then they still did it. This is the sort of stuff that inspires great folk songs. You won't write a song about, so we had a vote and 51.2% agreed that we should become one for tax and border protection reasons. <laughs> oh, I love it. Yeah, no, it doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? Rebel songs and struggle songs, oppression songs, whatever you want to call them. Like, it's a big piece of the pie if you look at at especially Irish uh, folk songs. I think anywhere that has oppression and struggles and fights and martyrs, there's going to be songs about them since the beginning of time. This is why they were writers and poets and dreamers. They were using their skills, as it were, to portray 
a certain aspect of it for future generations and if that's portrayed well enough and the future generations read into it and see it as something as big and epic as this they'll think about it more and they'll engage with it more and they'll believe in the dream more yeah and at this point the dream is pretty much the only thing left and the grittiness the ugliness of it is I wouldn't say forgotten. You could go to any bookshop in Ireland and probably find like hundreds of books that mention the Rising. So it's easy enough to to read up on on the reality of the Rising. But in daily life, when you think of it, it's the dream is what sticks, and the ugliness and grittiness isn't part of that idea. For sure. We've talked about the the lyrics for the Foggy Dew, but a lyric or the words, they're only a poem if they don't have a melody. Only mm-hmm. last week we were talking about 17 Come Sunday, also known as as I wrote out, which is an age-old story that has been told in uh, several, like, tens or, or twenties or maybe even hundreds of different songs, uh, two different melodies. With the fucking you, it's sort of the other way around. We know who wrote the lyrics. We know uh, when he lived. We know why he did it and what it's about. But the melody is much older, and it's a melody that has been used for several different songs. And that air, the ba da dee da dee dee da dee, it's I don't really know what it's called, but it's the melody of a song called the Moorlock Shore that existed before, before the Foggy Dew. It's used for several different songs, and I was surprised to see that it's actually also at some point been used for Down by the Sally Gardens. <laughs> another another poem by. by- Yates. By Yeats. A song that, that people know very well down by the Sally Gardens. How how does how does the Sally Gardens that we know go? Um So the usual the typical Sally Gardens that I'd be used to would be more of a down by the Sally Gardens. My love and I did meet, etc. etc. Yeah. But um yeah, it would be it, like it's a real nice gentle major key feeling and it's just it's got something melancholic about it. And uh yeah, thinking of it with the melody of the foggy dew is different. <laughs> Give us a taste. Was, sorry. Twas down by the sunny garden. My love and I didn't meet. <laughs> there's, there's the Morlock Shore, a traditional Irish love song. The air, also known by various other titles and lyrics, such as the Maid of Morn Shore, Morlock Mary, Banks of the Morlock Shore, On Tri Mudorna, The Maids of the Mountain Shore, The Foggy Jew, <laughs> Down by the Sally Gardens, and Gort na Salon. Um... Interesting. There's a lot of versions of it here. Sinead O'Connor supposedly even played it. And Sinead O'Connor, interestingly, recorded one of my favourite versions of The Foggy Dew as well. You oh. might have heard it from McGregor's Walkout in Las Vegas. That is such an epic version of the song. But so I, I just find it really, really weird to think of 
down by the Sally Gardens on that melody. But it's it's fairly common in Irish music to have the same melody used for several different songs. Just think of Hot Asphalt, which yes. is used by the High Kings for their original song, I believe, called The the Irish Pub or An Irish Pub. But the, interestingly enough, that my first introduction to the melody of the Hot Asphalt was actually a song by the Clancy Brothers, Let Mr. Maguire Sit Down. Oh, really? That that was my first introduction to the melody of the Hot Ash Felt. I had actually heard this song before I heard the Hot Ash Felt. And it, and it literally goes, Ara, get up out of that, you impotent brat. Let Mr. Maguire sit down. That was completely terrible. Edit that out. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see what happens. But then you have songs like Star of the County Down that I, for the longest time, played as uh, Crooked Jack. Yeah, I love that. With, a completely different that. lyric about a miner, uh, a mm-hmm. coal miner. And it could be just quite genius, to be honest, if there's a song that is really, really famous and well-known and people often requests it on a gig and the lyrics are still protected because the author of them died less than 70 years ago, but the melody is an old ancient air or a, a traditional tune you just take that tune and you write new words for it and most of the people that are listening won't even hear the difference out on a gig like if you're gigging in Temple Bar and you take okay the fog in you is protected and I'm not saying you like obviously you can still play it but you won't get full on money for it True Christian Imro give us to- give us your own verse of the foggy Jew there yeah but that's the thing like if I if I wanted to get uh, get, get a bigger payout from my public rights organisation I would just write a new lyric for the foggy dew and do go it like, on the spot give us a <clears> verse it was down by the opera house in Oslo that I bought me a donut fair <laughs> and it tasted so sweet with its icing of cherries Mango and sweet pear. I, I get you, yeah. The uh, the royalties will come pouring in. You could, even, <laughs> you could even you could even call it the foggy dew. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, like Christy Moore is notorious for that. A lot of singers are. They would take traditional songs and add their own verses or rewrite the songs. Obviously, I'm I'm joking. Most of the people that take traditional songs and they add to them or change them, they don't do that. For royalties' sake, they do, they do it because they add to to the tradition, and and that is such an important part of folk music, of traditional music, that the music is alive and is constantly like evolving. Just look at our episode from last week. Like, think of how many songs that story about that soldier boy and the maiden has given us like so many songs think about your favorite folk songs how many of them tell that story from last week you know how many songs have we got about the easter rising how many songs have we got about rebellion and war in general and like there's it can all be traced back to a few a few stories if you think about it logically which is really interesting yeah so josh since we're talking about the foggy dew and we're talking about the Easter rising, uh, what is what is Easter 
today in Ireland? Because the reason that I'm asking is that you have, on several occasions for the decade that I've known you, when we have talked about St. Patrick's Day and uh, what St. Patrick's Day is and isn't and what it ought to be, you have said that you think that Easter Monday should be Ireland's or possibly should have been Ireland's national day. It should be. I think it should be our Independence Day, in a sense. Like St. Patrick's Day is, it's it's almost a celebration of Irish-Americanism more than a celebration of Irishness, in a sense. But like if we wanted a national day, as in an actual national day to be proud of, Easter Monday should be that day, if you ask me. Like it's the day... We already have commemorations. We had one five years ago, 2016. I I toured around Ireland with the National Folk Orchestra and we even played in the Barbican in London and we performed a whole suite of music commemorating 1916 that was written by Michael Rooney. Macaulay 1916. Macaulay Like I said, like every night, every night we played on that tour, I was getting shivers down my spine because of the crowds and the people we were playing to and the significance of what we were doing. A hundred years later and the music that was written by Michael Rooney like I remember sitting on the stage in the Barbican Theatre being a part of this and almost being in tears and we also had the privilege at the time of performing in the RDS to 5,000 I think it was descend direct descendants of the leaders of the rising like there was a room full in the RDS of people and they were all directly related to the people who fought in the rising. And this is actually available to to watch online, is it not? I think it's on Facebook, you know. I think it's on Coltus in Britain's Facebook page. If if it is, we'll post it in the show notes. I linked yeah. it because this and is the album. The album is also available to buy from Michael Rooney's website, Macala nineteen sixteen. Amazing music. So if you have the time and want to listen to some good modern traditional Irish music, Michael Rooney is is uh, cream of the crop. It's compelling stuff. And if we had that much national heart that day, why can't we have it every Easter Monday? When I think of our national day in Norway, 17th of May, and I think of... Because I watched a lot of the commemoration stuff in 2016, uh, just online. And I remember that ceremony outside the GPO... Uh, with the with the kids from from the four different pr- uh, provinces putting down flowers, and you had uh, a Highland piper. Of yeah. course, there there were pipes uh, from from the um, from the Irish forces playing down by the Sally Gardens, and like that reminds ironically. me. <laughs> ironically, ironically, yeah. Are you sure it was that melody, or was it something completely different? <laughs> no, it, I'm I'm pretty sure it was that do 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 do, and it was really, really moving, and it reminds me a lot of how. 17th of May is celebrated in Norway. It's very much a celebration of freedom, freedom from oppression. Which is what a national day is. Look at Independence Day in America, 4th of July. Look at the Canadian Independence Day. Look at any Independence Day around the world. This is what they're celebrating. And what what are we celebrating in Ireland? Like on St. Patrick's Day. We have a lot of saints days in Ireland and someone just decided to turn that one into a 
drinking fest, like you said. I'm not knocking Paddy's Day. I enjoy Paddy's Day and I'm proud of what Paddy's Day is around the world in certain ways. I'd like to think that we'd have a bit of national pride around a day like Easter Monday. And why not both? Exactly. I, I can see some people yeah. no, writing you, in you, saying like, <laughs> oh, but Easter Monday is a different date every year. No, the 24th of April is what yeah. we're we're saying here. It'd be nice to see a little bit more around it on years that aren't just, as in not so, on, on more insignificant years than the 50th or the 100th anniversary that there was actually something to celebrate there because it was probably the most significant occurrence in Irish history. So what what are the views in countries outside of Ireland in terms of the rising and issues and occurrences around the rising or anything like that? Do do people even know what happened or if anything happened at all? I think in your experience. No, I think a lot of people I think very few people actually have a lot of knowledge. I discovered all of this history through song mostly in the beginning. Like Playing the Foggy Dew was very important to me uh, in in discovering Irish so, history. I just want to say as well that if anyone is interested in um, the story of the Rising and what happened afterwards and the cause for Irish freedom that happened in the late 19... Well, not late 1900s, but in, 19, in the teens of the 1900s into the 20s and 30s um, when we became a free state... There's a fantastic movie directed by Neil Jordan called Michael Collins. And I'm pretty sure that's available online. You can also find a fantastic uh, show. I'm not going to say it's fantastic. It's good, but I've yeah, only it takes, seen... It takes a lot of liberties. A lot of people give out that it wasn't yeah. 100% historically accurate. Yeah. But it dramatizes the events surrounding the rising in a season of a series called Rebellion. Yeah. And a follow-up series has just come out, am I right? Resistance. Resistance is now on the RTE player. That's basically taken, it's taken up the mantle after the 1916 Rising, kind of, I think it starts around 1921. And it it follows, I haven't seen it yet, I've just been reading about it. And it follows through the War for Independence, followed by the Civil War, and all of that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, of course, we're going to mention it another time as well in the future. The wind that shakes the barley. The wind that shakes the barley. Ooh. One of my all-time favourite movies, I have to say. You Directed by by Mr. David Lynch. Yep. And with the fantastic Killian Murphy in the leading role. Uh, Tommy uh, Shelby himself. Oh, Making such a great appearance in in that movie. Such a good movie. I rewatched that. We've recorded an episode recently, folks, about the song "The Wind That Shakes the Barley" that we'll be featuring quite soon in an upcoming episode. Yeah, coming soon to a streaming site near you, folks. Thank you very much for tuning in today. If anyone is interested in getting in touch with us about any aspect of this show at all, be it to be a guest, to suggest songs, to make comments on anything that we've said, tell us we're wrong, we can take it. Um, If you have anything else to say or anything to add to that, send us an email, get in touch on social media. Our email address is touralurapodcast at gmail.com. That's two O's in Tura, two O's in Lura, Touralura. And also we have social media we have our facebook we have our instagram and folks what we really need what we're begging you for at the moment is reviews on apple podcasts we need you to get in there click on write a review 
give us a few stars, five preferably, but it's up to you. And say something nice about Christian's hair. <laughs> We've got eight weeks to make a good impression with the old reviews and that pushes us up there and gets us into some playlists all around the place. We'll get into the Spotify playlists, we'll get into Google Podcasts, suggestions, all of that good stuff. And it's much appreciated, guys. So if you do enjoy the show, drop us a few stars, say hello, do all of that good stuff and like and follow the page, particularly Facebook and Insta. I have nothing else to say than to Relura to everyone and thanks for listening. To Relura. Tooralura, that's a Nahiri's lullaby. <laughs>